Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing great today, Tim. I hope all the listeners out there are doing just as great. Once again, we have this really unique opportunity to present a conversation to our listeners that features a follow-up to a prior conversation that had family members on representing a missing individual. And this one is the law enforcement angle. So whenever we get the opportunity to do this, we like to capitalize on it so we can get a full picture. And today our guest is Chief Paul Logan of the Grays Harbor Sheriff's Department out there in Washington State. And we really appreciate him coming on and telling us about Oakley Carlson's disappearance and the case from their perspective and a big shout out to Shayna and Tate's at light the way missing. You can find out what they're up to at light the way They introduced us to chief Logan as well as Jamie Joe Hiles. And again, this is part two of our coverage on Oakley Carlson's case. If you'd like to hear part one, we highly recommend checking that out. That was with Oakley's foster mom, Jamie Joe. And anyone with information about the disappearance of Oakley Carlson is asked to call 911 or the Grays Harbor, Washington Sheriff's Department at 360-533-8765. And if you have credible information leading to the discovery whereabouts of Oakley Carlson, the reward on that is up to around $100,000 now. And if you do have information about Oakley's disappearance and you're concerned about calling in, it's been restated numerous times that any prior offenses that are unrelated to Oakley's disappearance will not be recognized during that call. They just want information about Oakley. Okay, everybody, we're going to break quick for commercial here, and we'll be right back with Chief Paul Logan. Chief Paul Logan, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm very good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Uh, We never want to miss the opportunity to speak with someone in law enforcement, someone like yourself who's connected really closely to such a tragic story. Um, But before we get to that, can you uh, let the audience know a little bit about yourself, like your background? Uh, You are chief. Where are you the chief? And uh, how did you, has law enforcement always been in your your family? How did you get into this? I work for uh, Grace Harbor County Sheriff's Office. I'm the special services chief now, which entails um, supervision of the investigations unit, um, evidence, sex offender registrations, and a few other things. I've been in this spot. um, I was appointed in January of this year. Prior to that, I was the detective sergeant and a detective prior to that. You know, my, uh, I guess my law enforcement career started 20 plus years ago in the Yakima Valley and just kind of progressed over to here. And I was the first in my family to go into law enforcement and it's an interesting profession. And you said you're the uh, special services chief and that is dealing with, you said, registering sex offenders and uh, I guess crimes of that nature. What, what was it about that that drew you to it? I guess it was kind of the natural progression from where I was as the detective, then the detective sergeant, um, and then the uh, special services chief. Also, it's just it's the next step above detective sergeant um, as far as supervising the investigations division. There's a few more other things that are that are thrown in there, like sex offender evidence um, and some other divisions that I also supervise. But um, the main, you know, the main job other than um, also civil um, you know, the civil side of the sheriff's office. Um, but uh, my the main 
pull for me was to still be a part of the investigations division. Can you tell us a little bit about the community? I'm sure. Uh, Grace Harbor County, um, it's um, a very large um, county as far as um, square miles, um, not large in in, um, relation to population. We'll have 80,000 is the population approximately for the county. Um, Most of those live in the cities, um, Aberdeen, Hoquiam, Montesano, but basically from Olympia, the capital of Washington state, all the way up to the coast and then kind of north south. Um, for quite a ways, but it's it's mostly rural, um, mostly timber, um, a lot of open spaces, um, uh, fishing, hunting, hiking, um, a lot of lot of um, outdoors is the, kind of the central of the of the county. And how long have you been working on Oakley Carlson's case? I've been working on the Oakley Carlson case since about eleven thirty on um, December sixth, two thousand twenty-one. And you remember the time on that is. That something that stands out to you because of all of these tragic details, her age. Uh, what was what is it about the time? Why is that resonating with you? Well, it. Um, I guess the way it came in, um, we had um, a little bit of knowledge that that there might be an issue um, when um, a citizen contacted one of my detectives um, after hours, asking him what she should do. Um, reference a welfare check on a child that went to her school. Um, he gave her some some ideas, um, some instructions since the original welfare check was outside of our county, um, how, to, how to report that. The following morning, he came through our office and he had to go to training. But for some reason, this the details, I guess, bothered him a little bit or he was a little bit concerned. Something just put him off with this one. So he had a meeting with all of us in the detectives division, said, hey, I got a call about this. Um, girl, Oakley Carlson, yesterday, this is what I told the, the RP to do, but I got to go to training. So if something comes up later, um, I just wanted you guys to be aware. So he kind of put us on notice that um, this might there might be something more to this. And honestly, I think it was just good instincts on his part, the actual information. It was, was not to the point that we would um, start something significant at that point. Again, it's just a welfare check at that point, but um, he thought enough to come talk to us and by about 11.30, we had coordinated with the neighboring jurisdiction that had done the welfare check, and they contacted the parents, Jordan Bowers and Andrew Carlson. Um, the responses that they gave them let us know that, yeah, there's there's something more here than just um, you know somebody checking on the welfare. So that's when kind of everyone um, here, all the detectives, headed towards Oakville and began working on the case. That's really remarkable. That's amazing that the instincts took, took over like that, and... I'm curious how often that happens where someone is contacted, you said, after hours. So that shows sort of the urgency in the situation, right? Yeah. Yes, I would say definitely she was bothered by by what she um, by the situation and wanted to find out how to report it. I would also say it's it um, it has a lot to do with our, you know, my detectives and, and the deputies of their relationships with the people in the county. So, she, you know, she felt comfortable calling him at home. She knows who he is. She knows where he works. And she felt comfortable calling him at home and asking him for some advice. And, you know, he gave her gave her some good instructions on what to do the next day, but to kind of get the ball rolling. And uh, can you share a little bit more about what that's like inside your department when there's a story like that? I mean, it, it's not I'm sure it's not like you'd investigate differently, but is there a different sense of urgency when there's a, a, a child involved? Always. Um, it depends on the age of the child, depends on the circumstances. It depends on, uh, 
you know, where, who the child is supposed to be with, I, just any, all the information that comes in, it kind of, you have to take them all case by case basis. But whenever you're talking about a child who for the most part cannot defend themselves, can't get themselves out of a dangerous situation, they can't leave, they can't, there's, there's a lot of things an adult can do um, that a child can't. So um, when you get, um, when we get a report um, of a, of a smaller child that's in danger, it's obviously of a different priority just because they're, they're in the group that needs, um, needs help the most. I've done a total of three welfare checks in my life for individuals. And each one of them, I was so concerned that I was doing the wrong thing because I didn't want to be like intrusive or I didn't want to, I don't know, violate anyone's privacy. And I'm trying to ask without, because I know you don't have the, you can't give certain information, but the information that this woman gave, I mean, how significant was it where she took it upon herself to call in a wellness check? Uh, and without getting, you know, if you want to get specific, however you feel comfortable answering that, uh, I'm just thinking about my past experience and how much it took for me to say, okay, this needs to happen. Sure. And and how it, how it began um, is that she, um, Oakley's sister, had been spending the night um, with her. Um, and her daughter, which is kind of a sleepover. Um, and um, Oakley's sister had made a comment um, that she found concerning. Um, that with the fact that in the small community, she had been over to the Bowers resident or Bowers Carlson residence um, a few times in the previous months, had not seen Oakley. It just, she kind of put all of that together to be, to get, get her to the point where, yeah, I'm worried about this. Somebody needs to figure out um, what's going on. Um, we were, I guess in the same in the same respect, I think it's important not to um, forget that this was in the midst of COVID. Um, a lot of things were shut down. Um, this is a rural community, so the house is you know the house doesn't have any neighbors that are that are in close proximity. You add COVID, nobody's going to school. People aren't people are you know staying in their homes. Um, just it was kind of the perfect storm to have this kind of happening and not having those normal interactions at the post office, at the grocery store, at the school, um, pick up, drop off, that kind of stuff. Can you tell us when the last time Oakley was seen was? A big part of our investigation since um, December 6th we got it was backtracking to find out when the last um, credible time that someone other than the parents had seen Oakley. And we um, were able to backtrack back to February 10th um, of 2021 was the last time we had somebody from outside the house who had put eyes on Oakley and knew that she was there and that she was okay. And upon visiting Oakley's parents, Jordan Bowers and Andrew Carlson, upon visiting their residence for the first time, what was it, again, with as many details as, you've, as you feel comfortable explaining, what was it about their behavior, about the residence that set off even more red flags? Well, like, without getting in, into any specifics um, of what we found there and kind of the direction we took after that, um, I would say it was the lack of lack of concern, lack of assistance. Um, I'm a I'm a father. Um, every detective that I have are all fathers, parents, and I think most people have had that experience at a grocery store where your child might you know be right next to you and then they kind of wander around the corner looking at the next shiny thing. You turn around looking for them and they're gone, and you have that panicky feeling as you're running around a grocery store. Um, and usually the child's very close, um, but when you find them, um, you know, yeah, you just have that initial panic response. I didn't see that from either 
either um, Jordan Bowers or Andrew Carlson. There was no, um, there was no urgency. There was no panic. There was no, um, yeah, there was just no, um, no worry, I guess, about the location of the child and no panic in um, needing to find her, which I found very concerning. At that time, Oakley had been missing for months and, and Andrew and Jordan, they were not the people to report her missing. Is that right? Correct. I, based, like I said, based on our investigation, the last time we have somebody who's seen Oakley was was in February that we've been able to document. Oakley was not reported missing until after the welfare check, and even during the welfare check, she did not. Um, they didn't claim that she was missing. It was after that when uh, they were headed back out to the house from the hotel that they were in, where she was reported at that point. And do uh, Bowers and Carlson have any? Legal uh, issues, were they arrested previously? Uh, anything that was concerning on that end? Well, I'd say both of them have history. I, I, I'm not going to really go into specifics on their history. As a result of them being arrested um, and an investigation at this point, uh, they were both charged with, with assault of their other children based on methamphetamine being used in the home um, and some, some different things that, that occurred there. Um, so they were both subsequently charged with that and both ended up accepting guilty pleas um, and serving sentences for that. And you brought up the methamphetamine. Is that an issue that's in the area that is escalating or is it de-escalating or what's the status? It's everywhere. I don't know if it's increasing. De- I know it's definitely not decreasing. In Washington State, there um, there has been some things in the last few years that made it because of a Supreme Court ruling that we had several years ago on the Blake decision. It was um, simple possession. Uh, It took the simple possession um, of narcotics off of the table. So you couldn't be arrested for um, possession of methamphetamine, heroin, um, fentanyl. Um, Since then, it's been changed um, slightly to where I think it's a um, I think it's a misdemeanor or uh, might even be gross misdemeanor now um, with the suggestion that there's treatment and they have a year to do treatment. So there's really no charges on it as long as they go to treatment um, or start the process. Um, so needless to say, it's, yeah, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge problem in the, in the County. What was the line of thinking behind that? You said it's the Blake decision. It was, it was the, uh, yeah, it was the Blake decision. Um, and I believe the defense was that, um, the defendant had stated upon arrest that the pants that she was wearing were not hers. Um, that she bought them from Goodwill or, or a yard sale or something to that effect. And she was in possession of um, methamphetamine, heroin, something in her pocket. And they later determined that, um, yeah, because the pants were not hers, were not later proven to be hers, even though she was wearing them, that, um, yeah, constructive possession based on the way the law was written at that time was unenforceable. Does that um, make it your investigation any more complicated? I'd say it makes it more difficult whenever you're dealing with um, an investigation where um, a chunk of it occurred within the drug community, then these are the people that you're going to need to talk to. It used to be a little easier if um, someone had um, different charges that they, you know, they wanted to work off. They wanted some help with. They wanted some, um, something, you know, to that effect. Um, 
it was kind of easy for us to do that, or at least that was a good direction that we could go. We could offer help. We could offer um, to get rid of some charges for some information. Um, as soon as the as soon as the drug laws changed, um, no one is really getting arrested for the past few years. Um, anything other than higher level um, possession with intent to distribute cases. Um, so those are usually done by a drug task force and are not. Um, makes it more difficult for us to be to interact with a group of people that we need to. Does it also make it more difficult to um, get information because the uh, possible penalty isn't going to be as harsh? Oh, definitely. It's yeah. There's really virtually no penalty. Um, you know, and they know this, so they. Um, yeah, they're waiting, you know, in some cases, instead of come, coming forward with information, um, not only this case, but other cases, um, they're going to hold off on anything they know until they get caught for a burglary or a serious assault or something else and try to use whatever information they have to deal out of that instead of, uh, instead of the drug charges because they don't need it anymore. And you said that uh, Carlson and Bowers have both been are – they, are they currently serving time right now? Andrew Carlson, he served um, and was released and Jordan, Jordan Bowers ended up serving her sentence, and then she was subsequently arrested again upon her release from prison by us. Because, um, again, during the, um, during the process of this, this case, it has caused us just due to the – we're talking about a missing child, um, no stone unturned. Um, we ended up uncovering some additional crimes that Jordan Bowers um, had committed. So we prepared an additional um, charging package and gave that to the prosecutor who charged him. And she's just recently um, has gone to, I think last month has gone back to um, back to Purdy to start serving her prison sentence on the newer charges. And how long is that sentence? Without good time and um, any, any other um, easements that they would give by policy, I think it was 36 months. I see. So that probably isn't a long enough period of time to offer some sort of break if she were to give up information on Oakley. Probably not long enough of an incentive. No, um, I definitely would if if uh, if she wanted to, but I doubt that thirty six months is an enticement for her to do so. Were there any other complications in your investigation that uh, you can tell us about? Well, I think right off the bat, the complication was time and how long it had been since Oakley had been seen. We had to basically try to recreate um, her life for months and months, trying to figure out where she'd gone. And there really wasn't much there. Um, with an adult, you have a pattern of life. You know, most adults are going to go to the store. They're going to go get gas at the same gas station. They're going to um, go to work. They're going to have this pattern of, of things. Even um, school children have this pattern of, of life. Um, so you can go back and find out when exactly that pattern of life was disrupted and it gives you, um, you know, it's usually a little easier to, to, um, narrow in on a specific point in time in this case, because the family lived in such a remote location, um, because of COVID nobody visited because, um, Oakley was not in school yet. Um, there just really was not all of these other little things that we could use to, pin down this pattern of life. So that was a that was and is still a difficulty that we're trying to overcome. It sounds like impossible when you hear it like that, you know, because if you're looking for an adult, they've already established, like you said, a pattern of life. Like this this is a little girl who was only at the mercy of the adults around her. Absolutely. Um yeah. It's um I w I'd never use the word impossible because um, we, you know, we've spent a lot of time doing it and we we 
continue to work on it, but it's absolutely difficult. A lot of it is piecing together uh, the parents' lives, piecing together the other children's lives, you know, other extraneous things that have happened around their lives. Um, but, you know, we're still uh, still working on it. There's been a history, I guess we'll say alleged abuse of the other children and of Oakley. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, the, the abuse that I know of um, and that I could talk about is the um, chemical abuse, which was the initial charge that they were charged with. And that was a result of DSHS here. Um, once the children were taken into state custody, they did hair follicle tests. Um, the hair follicle tests showed levels of methamphetamine um, ingestion in the children. Um, that was what you know prompted those charges. Does that mean they consume it or are just in close proximity? It could be either or. I know that the the levels, um, I was told, you know, by the doctor, the levels were at a consumption level um, just based on how many nanograms were in, um, in in the test. But at the same time, they couldn't 100% say it was it was usage. It could have been an incredible amount of being in the same room with while it's being consumed. And how long is a, is the sentence for something like that if someone's convicted of that? Um, it depends. Um, it depends on what the what their history is. Someone without, you know, without any um, criminal history is in Washington State, and it's and I would assume it's it's the same for most states. Is um, our uh, offenders have offender scores? So if you have a certain number of felony convictions, then you know your score goes up. The higher the higher your score is, the longer your sentence is going to be on any crime. Uh, Jordan Bowers received twenty months for her her sentence and i believe andrew carlson received 12 months for his again because he had less of a criminal history and then what happens to the child after the fact are they put into a form of rehab they're provided services they're still wards of the state um and they're provided services you know physical um emotional psychological services with the state and i guess um time to dry out in jail or prison hasn't changed anything as far as information uh that Oakley's parents are uh, providing. No, they they have not um, not provided any substantive information about Oakley's whereabouts since the first day. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. And have you conducted uh, searches for Oakley? We have. Um, I'm not sure off the top of my head how many search warrants we've written in this case. Um, for different electronic files, whether it be um, cell phone records, location records, different app, apps on on phones, banks, that kind of stuff. But we've also done um, multiple searches on the property, the surrounding property, other properties of note, hundreds and hundreds of, of searchers, hours, um, cadaver dogs, drones, um, flyovers. Um, yeah, quite a bit. And nothing has been found of significance, or is there a certain area that keeps popping up for some reason? Well, again, just because of the the rural nature of where they lived in the surrounding property, no matter how, unfortunately, uh, no matter how much time we put into this type of search in this kind of property, you can never get to the point where you're you're one hundred percent convinced that there's nothing there. Uh, we're dealing with a lot of timber, a lot of brush land where it's so thick that you can hardly um, crawl through it or you can't crawl through it, um, cliffs, uh, waterways, that kind of stuff. So it's um, definitely not your open field type of searching. 
that being said, I think what we've done, I can reasonably say that um, unless something comes up, I think that the areas that we've searched have been searched as good as they can be. You know, there's always always the desire to search more, but um, at this point, we need a reason to start another search in a location or in a certain certain spot. And do you ever give any advice to anybody who wants to conduct an independent search if they wanted to get a group of people together to do this? Uh, what do you typically say? Well, we have had that occur in this case. One, um, it's very rare, and I will usually say, you know, don't. Um, and it's just for the safety of the searchers. Um, and there's different evidence requirements. If something is found to preserve the evidence, also you're um, usually in these, you're dealing with private property. So where we would have a search warrant or permission from a property owner to go onto their property um, and the labor and industries and insurance and everything set up ahead of time when we're doing it, private people who are going to go search usually don't have any of that infrastructure set up. So that's why I would usually suggest not to do it. If they have a, a location based on specific information, I would say give us that information so we can develop a search plan. In this case, like I said, there was a group that had reached out and said they wanted to um, conduct a search. Um, they had already they'd gotten permission to be on the land. Um, they'd gotten assistance from the, the different um, DNR, Department of Natural Resources land that was behind there. They... Um, came up with a good plan. They, yeah, they, they did a great job as far as the infrastructure that we would normally do. But, um, I've been a search and rescue coordinator for nine years and this is the first time I've ever had a group be able to do what they did. Um, so again, I would suggest for the most part, I would say no, but at the same time, I can't stop somebody from if they get the permissions and they want to do it. So, um, it's kind of up to them. And, uh, as part of your, um, searches and, um, subpoenaing of information, were you able to get uh, cell phone pings and, and messages from the time when Oakley went missing to lead you uh, to where to search? Um, I'd say as far as the, um, as far as the electronic data that we've got, um, we got terabytes of data from different locations that we um, use in the FBI cast team who's been working with us from the beginning. Um, we were able to go through a lot of it and, um, you know, kind of extrapolate a lot of data out from that that we're still using um, to use follow-ups. But other than that, I'm not going to comment on any specifics that we've got out of those search warrants. And Oakley spent time as a foster child. And during this time, she seemed to be thriving and she seemed to be healthy and happy. Uh, is there any information that you have about her foster parents, Jamie Joe, and Eric that you'd like to share? Yeah, I don't have much information about her when she was in foster care. I know she was. Um, obviously, during my investigation, I wanted anything and everything from every area that I could get. And her definitely being in foster care from a very young age to where she went back into the custody of, of um, Andrew Carlson and Jordan Bowers. Um, so I reached out early on to uh, Jamie Jo, um, introduced myself, because um, at this point we did not know where Oakley was. So within a day, I'd reached out to Jamie Jo um, just to see if maybe for some reason she was back at her house or she had any information about where she was. Since that time, I've had uh, many conversations with both Jamie Joe and Eric Hiles. They have been nothing but cooperative, um, you know, with us, any, anything that we need them to do um, as far as providing information. Um, they, you know, DNA samples from some things that Oakley had. Um, so that I could prepare a DNA profile of Oakley to put into the um, 
the national database. They are um, they're definitely dedicated to to finding out what happened to her. In your opinion, was there a part of the foster process that failed Oakley? I would say anytime you end up with a result um, or a case where the child is missing, um, then I think there needs to be a hard evaluation of what got us to this point. I haven't spent any time um, digging back into what decisions were made by DSHS or anyone involved in that, honestly, because it doesn't do me any good in finding Oakley. And that's my that's my goal is 100% goal every day is to find Oakley and going back to to what a department did or didn't do. While I think it's important that that's done. And if there um, if there were mistakes or or things done there that, um, you know, need to, someone needs to be held accountable, then that's, you know, that's uh, what should be done. But it's not in my purview. We uh, made the introduction with you through Shana at Light the Way Missing. Can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with her and that organization? Absolutely. Um, they've been very helpful in this case. Um, and I know some other cases that I've read um, about their work on. Uh, basically, just some people that really care have started this uh, Light the Way group to um, advocate for the missing children um, to, you know, they, they can uh, reach out and do some things on the private sector that, um, that we can't. Um, there are people who um, don't want to talk to me because I'm law enforcement for whatever reason, but they are comfortable talking to, talking to them. And then it's one more, one more way for me to get information from, um, you know, from someone who might want the information eventually to get to me but for whatever reason that they don't want to talk to me directly. Um, so um, Light the Way can kind of be that conduit of grab, getting information, um, you know, doing some online, you know, very good at online open source um, detecting. And if they find something, you know, they let me know. But they've, um, yeah, they are based out of the East Coast, but they've been here uh, multiple times now to, um, to help where they can. And I think the Having the name Oakley Carlson as far and wide as it has now, um, including the reward of what I've been told is right around $100,000, I think that's um, that's definitely due to the work of Light the Way. Wow, yeah, I wanted to ask about the reward. You said uh, $100,000, up to 100000 or close to it? Yeah, that's my understanding is it's right at 100000 Wow, and is that a reward for information um, that leads to Oakley? Correct. Leads to the um, the location of Oakley. In the beginning of this conversation, I just expressed uh, the, our gratitude for having you on. You are law enforcement and you are working every day on Oakley's story. What, how important was it for you to come on the show? I just am curious what the, your perspective is, is to say, like, this podcast is going to be important for me to be on to talk about Oakley. What, what's your what's your thought process? I guess my thought process is I don't want the name Oakley Carlson to um, disappear. I want it to continue um, for people to ask questions. Um, at some point, there's a piece of information out there I'm convinced that somebody has that will get me to a point where I can I can find Oakley. I don't know what that is, obviously, but I think the more um, the more times her name is said, the more posters that are up, the more billboards that are up, the more people are talking about it. Um, the more people that are asking, you know, Andrew Carlson and Jordan Bowers where she is, the more the more people that care. And I think, you know, being, coming on, on shows like this um, and getting that message out there, I think that's the important thing to keep her keep her name 
you know, in this case in the, in the forefront. And what is next for you and your department in searching for Oakley? Um, honestly, we had, um, we had a detective meeting last week where we came up with um, kind of new, um, our next steps. Um, we're never out of steps. Um, there's some, um, there's some re-canvassing, there's some re-interviews, there's some, um, investigating and interviews on some new tips that have come in. It runs the gamut of, you know, kind of going over some ground that's already been gone over and going over some stuff that, that has just come in, you know, that we, that we're working on. Um, we've, yeah, we've, we've always got a few things out there that we're waiting for to come in. Um, we continue to get tips, um, here at the at the sheriff's office and through um national center for missing and exploited children or crime stoppers um we get tips from all of them and when we get those we we run them down so um that's kind of the next step is is a concerted effort for all of us to um hopefully you know put aside some of the other cases we're working and and work again full-time on this for a few days to get roll through this stuff and then you know, as stuff comes in, we'll continue to evaluate it and investigate it. And do you believe that the persons responsible for Oakley's disappearance have told other people about what happened to Oakley? And if you do believe that, is there a message that you would like to convey to these people? Anyone with information? Um, I guess I'd say probably. Usually um, people don't operate in a vacuum. Human nature is we have to share something with someone. I think it alleviates the conscience somewhat or it brings someone in and makes you feel better or it makes you feel more comforted um, when you get something off your chest to someone. So I believe, yeah, between both Andrew Carlson, and Jordan Bowers, anyone else connected, um, they, there's been, there has been conversations. I would say if someone out there does know, my goal is not to, I guess, disrupt someone's life. It's to find Oakley Carlson. So if they do have information, then that's that's where the information is going to go. It's going to go to me to find Oakley Carlson, not to try to dig into, you know, their life or what they've got going on. I just I want them to come forward and say, hey, I've got this piece of information that might help you um, and um, steer me in the right direction. Well, that's great. Thank you uh, so much, Chief Paul Logan, for uh, spending some time with us today and uh, telling us about uh, Oakley and your investigation into her disappearance. We really appreciate it. You bet. Well, thank you for having me on and continuing to talk about Oakley. And if there's anything that comes up in the case, any developments, let us know if it's worth coming on again to talk about. If you feel like that's important, uh, doors open. Will do. Appreciate it.